inherited profession, you might say, uh, or trade in, in the New Testament. And, um, of course, we left off talking a little bit about the, uh, the temple, the building of the temple, things of that sort. The, the next part that we'll go to, I'll go ahead and see if I can forward to it real quick. There we go, carpentry in the Bible. Um, let's see. Okay, it's all, all right, that should be the right place. There we go. All right, so uh, continuing on with that thought pattern, though, about uh, carpentry that, that, you know, it's mentioned in the Old Testament and the New Testament as well. Um, If you look over at Isaiah, chapter 41, verse 7, God himself in this passage actually describes himself as a a builder or a a carpenter. Uh, Interestingly, you know, early, that early on in the Bible, he, he identifies himself as a carpenter or a, or a craftsman. He said, um, he strengthens the goldsmith and he smooths with the hammer him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. And God, you know, describing himself that way, he's, he's not just describing uh, making of creation or the building of a, or of a structure or something like that. He is referring to himself as the one who actually smooths and makes us, who actually perfects and, um, and, and, and tweaks us, you know, makes us into who he wants us to be as his people. Um, he's the one who makes everything true and good and strong. And again, this would have been carried into Jesus' own ministry and work, I think. Um, that whole concept of smoothing people, uh, using the hammer and the, the smoothing instruments to make us into who he wants us to be, molding us and shaping us. And again, in Isaiah 44 and 13, it says carpentry is mentioned with a negative connotation here in relation to the making of idols. Um, but interestingly, the context of the passage talks about a carpenter who carves and shapes wood into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. And as the creator of the universe and man himself, Jesus would stand as the master carpenter who would shape mankind into what we are now. And of course, you know, if you you look back over, uh, just even all the way back to to Genesis, all the way back to the beginning, um, God is taking man, he's forming him out of the dust of the earth, he's shaping man into the creature he wants him to be in his own image. And this whole idea of shaping and building and creating and recreating humanity throughout human history is an important concept. And it's that building aspect, that creative aspect of God that follows us through our whole human story. Of course, Timothy was encouraged by Paul to do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker or workman, who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. That's in 2 Timothy 2.15. We've heard that that verse many times. And of course, some some commentators have equated the term workman or skilled worker with tecton. The tecton that we mentioned earlier that refers to carpenters or builders. um, As a metaphor of someone who has the skills to completely and fully craft something of beauty 
and significance. Altogether, the station of carpentry within the Jewish and later Christian society was one of honor and carried with it the connotation of someone who knew what they were doing. And that's really the concept that uh, Paul seems to be trying to get across to Timothy in this passage is you be someone who knows what they're doing. Study. Pay attention to what you're doing. Know what you're talking about. Uh, Have all your ducks in a row before you go and you present the word before the congregation, before people who are Christians or are seeking to be Christians. They're seeking God. And that applies, of course, to us. You know, if we're going to, if if I'm going to stand up here and teach a class to you, you know, I need to be prepared. Um, You know, and I hope I am. I hope I am well prepared. I I, I wrote these, I wrote these lessons months ago and I studied uh, pretty hard to get them written. Um, I like to write my lessons out completely so I don't, I don't have to worry if I'm, uh, you know, if I have something to say up here. But, um, you know, that, that was the idea is Timothy be that tecton, be that craftsman, be that, uh, that carpenter, that workman who knows what he's doing, who is skilled at crafting uh, your words, skilled at crafting what needs to be said uh, through the Holy Spirit to, to preach the gospel. So now that we've kind of talked a little bit about carpentry in the Bible <clears throat> and Jesus the carpenter, um, we, we want to move on to Jesus the carpenter as a man. Okay. Of course, we, our last lesson we talked about Jesus the man, how he had, has a mission, had a mission, has a mission, fits into creation, fits into humanity, the fact that we all are imbued with this uh, need to work, this need to do something, this need to be creative, this need to be uh, occupied. So this kind of goes along with that thought pattern. There are some direct references in the New Testament to the fact that Jesus was employed at least for some time in the trade of carpentry. The fact that Joseph, was a, Joseph his uh, earthly father, was identified as a carpenter is, of course, a solid indication of the trade Jesus would have learned while growing up since the firstborn son would not only have learned his father's business, but would have been expected to take it over after his father's retirement and death, thereby providing for the family and passing the skill to his own offspring. So it was a big deal back in that day for the firstborn son to sort of have this passing of the torch from the father to son of the occupation, the family business, the trade that his father performed when he was uh, living and working throughout his adult life. And so Jesus, being the firstborn son, would have been expected by his family to actually take that trade, to, to take the hammer from his dad, so to speak. And to continue in doing that trade. Of course, things didn't really go that way. Which led to some, some strange circumstances between him and his family. And we'll see that here in a moment. If you look at Matthew, 50, uh, I'm sorry, Matthew 13 ver, uh, verse 55. The fact that Joseph was a carpenter is seen here. And uh, when Jesus is rejected in his hometown... If you listen to that, you can read or listen to this verse. It says, is this not the carpenter's son? Is this not, uh, is this not his mother called Mary? 
And are not his brothers James, Joseph, and Simon, and Judas, or Judah? The people of Nazareth only saw Jesus as the one who made furniture and fixed roofs. That's how they saw him. The people in his own hometown, when they looked at him, they said, Aren't you the carpenter's son? Isn't this your mom and your brothers? Aren't you related to them? When they looked at him, they saw a guy who was a carpenter. That's how they saw him. That's how they understood him. And while contempt definitely played a part in their misunderstanding, there was also incredulity toward Jesus as he would have been seen as abdicating his position as caregiver and family head as the firstborn son. The people of Nazareth may have been holding a grudge based on what they misconstrued as a deadbeat firstborn son who should have never left carpentry for some silly half-baked ministry. You ever thought about that? <clears throat> How they, they must have completely misconstrued, this, misconstrued the situation. But from a worldly standpoint, that's more than likely what they saw when they saw Jesus come back home. They're like, didn't you leave? Didn't you, didn't you run away? Didn't you totally give up on your family and go crazy and decide you were going to go run off and preach some new weird offshoot of Judaism? That's how they would have seen him. Of course, we know better, but I mean, that's a hard thing to get around. That's a hard thing to, to bring people back from. Just consider, you know, if... if uh, Anybody in this auditorium did something like that today. It'd be, it'd be a hard thing to, to, to get around and to come back from. And in Mark 6 and verse 3, we see a clearer, I think, depiction of uh, and wording of the same event. Mark records this as well. It says, is not this the carpenter? Didn't call him carpenter's son here. He calls him actually carpenter. The son of Mary and the brother of James and Jodas and Judah and Simon and are not his sisters here with us also. So he refers to his sisters as well. And they took offense at him. Here Jesus is identified not just as the son of a carpenter but as a master of the trade itself. And he's thrust forward into a place and occupation that he has apparently left behind. But I I think that what they really don't understand and maybe what we miss as well is that Jesus really never left that trade behind. I think that carpentry, the the trade that he grew up learning and performing remained very close to his heart. And I think as we go through the rest of the lesson, we'll see just how close that remained to his heart and remains to him even today as a builder someone who fashions and forms and creates. Because he preached about it. And he didn't preach about it just once. He preached about carpentry, he preached about building, he preached about creating on a regular basis throughout his ministry. Carpentry, craftsmanship, workmanship, and building are integral parts of everything Jesus says and does throughout his ministry. He, he talks about it all the time. This is evident not only in his life, but in the writings of the Old Testament prophets and in the early church. In his parables, sermons, and ministry as a whole, Jesus builds and designs 
and crafts. He sets up foundations, he drops the plumb bob, he shoots lines, and he levels beams, all resulting in a people and a church ready to bring his gospel to the world. Us. He's building something. The whole time he's here, he is building something. Work is something important to Jesus. He continues to work today. I have a quote here from a man named Mark Colden. He comments in his paper, uh, on this in his paper titled Work and Meaning, some theological reflections. And he says, Human work needs to be thought of primarily in relation to God the Creator, who establishes the whole of the created order. The Christian understanding of creation is not simply that once upon a time God made everything. This is part of it, to be sure, but still more important is the affirmation that God is constantly creating everything. Nothing exists in itself or on its own. Everything is always being upheld by the ongoing divine creative work. See, God is just as active in our world today and in us today as he was on the first six days of creation. When it said God rested on the seventh day, it didn't mean that he rested forever. It didn't mean that God stopped. Yeah, buddy. I think so. I, I think a work in progress is probably a good way to, um, to describe that. Um, the term just slipped my mind, but, oh, progressive creation. Progressive creation is a term that I've heard used many times in relationship to the church and to all of creation, that God, you know, he, he's staying with us. He's continually creating. We'll, we'll talk about some, some passages that refer to that, but, you know, one of the things... Um, uh, I really appreciate when, when David Baker begins all of his prayers, he, he says, um, to, to, you know, to, he speaks to God and he, sa- he says, um, the creator of this day and all days before and after. He says something to that effect. And, and I, I, I believe the same thing. I think that God creates each day and I think he creates each moment. I think that he is <clears throat> continuing with us every moment. Um, upholding us and, and creating and, and making things as we go along. Um, it's, it's easy for us to think, uh, you know, especially someone like uh, like me who who can who go out into a workshop or go build something, and I build it, <clears throat> say maybe this something like this podium for instance, and I set it there and it's usable and it's functional and it looks nice, and it is. I made that and it stands because I made that, and we think that's. That's what's just how it is, because that's what we see. That's what we experience in this physical reality. But, but I have to understand that I didn't make the matter this is made out of. I'm not the one who's upholding its existence. I'm not the one who is continuing it. I just took the pieces that God gave me and put them together. He's the one that upholds this thing, not me. <clears throat> I just put stuff together. So, you know, that, that's an, I think it's an important concept for us to understand um, and something that he uh, talks about over and over. And if we look at some of Jesus' parables, uh, the wise and the foolish man, for instance, in chapter 7 of Matthew, 
They were both building one on a solid foundation and one on a weak place. Jesus uses this to show his disciples where they should place their faith and on what foundation to build. In John 2.19, he said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Of course, he's referring to his own body, referring to his death, burial, and resurrection to rise on the third day. And in this sentence, in, in what he's saying here, it's really the key to salvation. This is the key to the fact that we're dead in our sins and that he can, he can raise us up the way he raised himself up. He tells us that he can rebuild anything and anyone at any time. He has the power and might to take what has been destroyed and put it right once more. And of course, he tells Peter famously in Matthew 16, 18, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He can build on anything. He can build on us. How imperfect are you? How imperfect am I? And still he uses us as as broken as we are as individuals and as humanity to build something beautiful and strong and enduring and eternal. People who will last forever in his presence. Jesus never lets go of building anything. And he still builds today as our master carpenter. Just like I was saying a moment ago that, you know, Buddy brought up the progressive creation, the continuing creation, the fact that God upholds us and upholds everything we see and everything we know, even our, our very physical forms. Well, Jesus also draws on prophecy. And, and by the way, while I'm going along, please take Buddy's example, interrupt me, raise your hand. If you have any questions or want to say anything or whatever, please, you know, stop me. Um, because I have all this kind of written down and I'm just kind of going along. So if you, if you have something you want to bring up, please do. <clears throat> but Jesus draws on prophecy uh, that talks about building and how he would become not only the foundation, but the builder as well. And when he talks to Peter, <clears throat> he talks about on this rock, on the foundation that I am the Son of God, that I am Jesus, that I am the Christ, I'm the anointed, the Messiah. <clears throat> all those words mean the same thing. Uh, on that foundation is, what, is, how, is where this church will be built. It's where this assembly, where this great nation of people will be built. That's how it will be built is on that foundation. So he's not just the foundation, but he's also the builder. He's, he's also the person who actually puts it all together. In Psalm 118, verse 22, we've heard this one before. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He also points that out in Matthew 21, 42 through 44. He brings that <clears throat> verse back into the, to the forefront. Jesus doesn't just talk about how everything will be built on him, but that his power will overcome everything and everyone who doesn't build on him. If you look back at the wise and the foolish builder, you know the person who builds his house on the sand is overcome by the floods, is overcome by the rains, is overcome by the winds. 
and everything falls because he didn't build on the firm foundation, the solid foundation, the only enduring eternal foundation that is Jesus Christ himself. So anyone who tries to build uh, their life around anything that is fleeting, anything that is not eternal, it's, it's going to fall. Sooner or later, it's going to fall. If we build our lives around our own pride or our own shame or our own envy, strife or anything like that, which many people unfortunately try to do, it will fall. And of course, we're a part of the building itself and the co-workers with the builder himself. So we're following as a church and as individuals after the pattern of the builder. Because again, as we talked about in our, our, our last lesson about Jesus the man, he, he isn't just sitting there on high saying, okay, you guys do all the work. No, he is asking us to take his yoke alongside him, to come alongside him, to work alongside him with him in his creation, in his church, in the human experience. And the fact that we are working alongside Jesus is important. It's not just a leader follower kind of thing. It's a all servants working together kind of thing. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. Kind of, it goes along with this very well. It says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Jesus has created us in himself and included us in his work as builders, carpenters, tecton, people who are craftsmen, who have an important role in his work and who can incorporate into every area of our lives the work that is his work. We are Jesus' greatest work of art, his most prized creation. Have you ever thought of yourself as a work of art, a prized creation of God? Someone who is important and valuable. Someone who can be used by Jesus in every facet of your life. Because that's who you are. That's who we are. Not just by virtue of being his church and members thereof, but by being his creation. By being made in God's image. If we can get that point across to other people who are out in the world... How could that change humanity? How could that change the way they look at themselves? How could that change everything? I think it can change things. I really do. I believe that. Because too many people in the world today, they, they don't look at themselves as created in God's image. They look at themselves as creating themselves in their own image, making themselves their own God. But that doesn't last. You know, we talked about glory, glorification, and the fact that all... Our purpose goes toward glorifying God, glorifying Him. If we try to glorify ourselves, it's fleeting. It's just a flash and it's gone because human glorification can't last. It just cannot. But if we take all the glory that God has bestowed upon us and we put it on Him, that glory remains forever. That glory lasts because He lasts And that's the only way that it's going to endure. That's the only way that glory and beauty and goodness are going to endure is if we take that and we put those those precious treasures in heaven with Him. We lay those things up with Him. 
That's when they last. That's when they remain beautiful and perfect forever, is when they are in him and with him. So just to wrap up this lesson, and we'll try to move into the next one. Like I said, I'm trying to stay ahead because we've got a couple of Sundays when we won't be able to do these lessons um, with special Sundays going on. Um, Jesus is the master builder. And he can make us master builders as well in the same way he used Paul. Now, how messed up was Paul? He was pretty messed up. He was running around killing Christians, right? Making a real mess of things until Jesus came along. Look at what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 11 about being a master builder. It says, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. And someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. This power and skill comes from the one who made everything. If we look at John chapter 1, you know, what does it say over and over again? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Nothing was made that was made without Jesus. He made everything. Uh, he gives us this uh, picture of creation. Jesus made it all. And he's not done yet. He's continuing. If you look at uh, Hebrews chapter 1, I think it's verses 1 through 4. I'll read this passage. He's continuing. It gives us a picture of his continuing in creation. Continuing with us. He hasn't left us. He is with us all the time. He's continuing in this. It says, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Remember, guys, we talked about earlier, we're co-heirs with him. He's the heir of all things. We are co-heirs with him. Through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Every moment, every day, all the time. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited and more excellent than theirs. Jesus is more excellent than all the angels. Jesus is still working and building today. He upholds the universe. He upholds everything. He upholds you and me. By the word of his power. That's who he is. Jesus is still working and building today. He is still that artisan, that tecton, that craftsman, that carpenter. Crafting and carving away the pieces that don't fit. And he's still making and caring for and keeping every one of us. He's looking over us. He's taking care of us. Loving us. Trying to... Bring us farther into his service and into his creation. Oh, I'm sorry. It was already on. Can y'all go back a slide for me? I just, I know I can't do it on this thing. It was already where I wanted to be, the work application. 
So just a little bit to wrap up here with the work application part. So I try to, at the end of each lesson, kind of show how it fits with us, how we can apply this in our own work as we go out into our workplaces. Um, <clears throat> not just from a vocational standpoint, but of course from a spiritual standpoint. So, As craftsmen and women, craftswomen, we work alongside Jesus, and we need to pay close attention to the details while seeing the wider view of our work for him and with him. And work with him as he works through us. There's great value in knowing that we're doing as Paul told Timothy to do. If we're going to be true workmen, we have to practice the craft of making the beautiful work of art in his kingdom just as we pay attention to detail in our daily work. So, you know, if, if I'm at work and I'm paying close attention to detail and doing all the best things that I possibly can do there, shouldn't I do the same thing as I'm working in his kingdom? And that doesn't mean just here as we worship and do service projects together and things like that. That means in every aspect of our lives. The work we do has the propensity to become a deeply defining part of our lives as Jesus Carpentry apparently did for him. We can use our understanding and knowledge of our secular work to instruct and lead in the kingdom of heaven. There is a place for your talent in his kingdom. So no matter what it is you do, <clears throat> if you have a talent, if there's something that you do well and you know it, you bring that to God. That is something that you bring to his service. It's something that you can use in his kingdom. And I, I believe he wants that for you. He wants you to be able to do that and to work for him in that way. So just a few questions for thought that I'll throw out here at the end. <clears throat> How can you use your own knowledge, work knowledge, and experience in God's kingdom? What do you think? That's great. That's a great example. Yeah, I think everybody heard that. Uh, Lewis Hartzog, a great example of someone who had great sales skills and who was able to take that and use it in God's kingdom to show people they need Jesus. You know, <clears throat> people don't realize a lot of times they need something until you show them they need it. <laughs> and then you help them get it. That's a great example. Any other ideas about how you can use your your secular, the work that you do now, and I say secular work, <clears throat> again, you know, there's really, there's really no such thing as far as honest work goes. You know, there's not a, there's not a such thing as secular work, I don't think. Um, it's, it's work that God has given us to do, and we're supposed to work for him as we're doing everything, you know. Uh, it's all a part of, of working for him. But how can you use the work that you do, let's say, just out in the world every day?
It's a great, yeah, that's a great point, George. Um, uh, <laughs> you know, if, if we're, we hear it all the time, really, you know, we're, we're, we, we've heard it all our lives. Um, read your Bible, pray, you know, make that preparation uh, in, your, in your daily life, just like you would for any other work that you would do. You know, use your work, it's kind of a backwards feeding example. You know, if I go to work and I don't have all my <clears throat> stuff scheduled and I don't have, um, my plan's laid out, and, and I don't study the things that I need to study to know what I'm supposed to do and then put that into, into practice and things like that. I'm, I'm not going to get very far, am I? I'm not going to be a very successful employee, am I? Well, the same thing goes for being a, a, a child of God and working in God's kingdom. If, I, if I'm not uh, doing the things that I need to do or you know, putting in the effort, then I'm not going to get much return on that, am I? And I, I'm not going to feel apart. I'm not going to progress, you know, if you want to put it that way. I'm, I'm not going to be a servant for God uh, the way that I, I need to be. So, you know, it all, it all goes together. It all really kind of <clears throat> runs together. And that, yeah. Wow, yeah, that's great. That's absolutely, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That, you know, if you're, uh, Brother Wayne was saying he's, a sal- he's been a salesman all his life, and, you know, if you're, if you're going to present a new product to someone, you have to have a presentation ready to go, right? And same thing with the Word of God. You know, if we're going to present the Word of God to people, then we kind of need to be ready to go. You know, like Paul was telling Timothy, right? You know, be that tecton, be that craftsman. Know what you're doing, know what you're saying, know what you're talking about before you sit down with somebody and move into that conversation. It's a very important point. Um, Well, another question. How does Jesus' work ethic and attention to detail as a craftsman find its way into your work? We'll just say work. I hope it does. (laughs) Yeah, go, Miss Nail. Miss Nail. Like what they said about, yeah, you have to be prepared. Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And we talked about in the last lesson, you know, uh, plan the work and work the plan, right? I've heard that so many times, and I I love that. It's right, you know, if if we have to have something laid out, something ready to go, and then execute it. Be ready, be ready, be prepared. In season and out of season, we've heard heard that before. All right, that's a great point, Ms. Nell. Thank you. As a master builder for Jesus, what foundation are you laying in your secular work, your personal life, and your church work? Miss Nell, I'm sorry. 
It's mm. a great point. We are exemplars, you know, in every facet of our lives. We're we're letting our light shine before men, you know, and that glorifies God, and that that shows makes a big difference. And the foundation that goes along with that is Christ. You know, if we're not building our lives on that foundation, then that foundation isn't extending to every other part of our lives. All right, well, any other questions or comments before we move on? I want to try to get in a little bit into the next lesson. We've got a few minutes left. All right. Okay, all right. Well, let's move on to Jesus the shepherd then um, while they're getting that going. Um, And, of course... Yeah, we're, we're approaching it, you know, from the perspective of the kinds of jobs that you would labor at physically, uh, carpentry and shepherding and things of that sort, at, at, for the next few lessons. And then we'll get into some more professional type jobs and then eventually into the uh, major leadership positions. But shepherding, of course, is, is what a lot of people today would consider a blue collar type job, uh, a laborer type position. And... Jesus fits very well into that. Um, sheep were an integral part of Jewish life for thousands of years. Their wool was used for clothing, blankets, tent making, and numerous other applications. Sheep were part of pretty much all their life. They fed the Israelites in the wilderness with their milk and cheese and meat. Sheep were the very lifeblood of Jewish society. They were used um, in sacrifices, of course, most notably for the Passover. And, and they were seen as a symbolic facsimile of Israel itself. Uh, although shepherds were seen as the simple keepers of sheep, notable figures like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and King David enjoyed elevated status in Israelite history and society. As a result, the station of shepherd has become an occupation synonymous with one who not only cares for others, but leads, protects, and fights for them. In this study, Jesus' nature as the good shepherd will be discussed in relation to shepherding in the Old Testament, Jesus' own teaching about shepherding, and how he has established a system of shepherding for our time and for all of time. Um, to start, kind of like we did last time, I want to give a survey of shepherding in the Old Testament. We'll look at some passages that go along with shepherding. And there's actually a lot of them, <laughs> quite a few. Shepherding, being a shepherd was a huge part of life. Shepherding is actually the third oldest occupation in human history, uh, defined by the Bible, closely following scientists and farming or gardening. In Genesis uh, chapter 4, verse 2, Abel is identified as a keeper of sheep. Of course, Abel, uh, Abel brought a sacrifice of the firstborn and fat portions of his flock and pleased God. So right from the start, shepherding, pleasing God, all these things seem to coincide. They go together somehow. They fit. So from the, from the very start, shepherding and sacrifice... Uh, the sacrifice attached to it, were positively regarded by God. This follows, uh, as we see, the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who had massive flocks of sheep, 
and managed to care for them in innovative ways, thereby increasing their wealth and sustaining their large, swelling families. So God used the occupation of shepherding to advance his people throughout human history. From the very beginning, all the way back to Abel. Jacob had a special talent for shepherding and producing strong flocks of sheep. In Genesis 30, 29 through 43, you can see Jacob's ability to produce and raise strong flocks of sheep. He uses some unusual breeding methods that are blessed by God to bring forth artificially selected stronger flocks, thus leaving his father-in-law Laban with the weaker sheep and a lesser amount of sheep as well. Of course, unfortunately, Jacob's shepherding expertise seems to end with his care and feeding of sheep. Uh, He fails at relationships repeatedly, alienating his own brother Esau by cheating him out of his birthright in Genesis 27. And he fails at being a good husband to Leah by playing favorites with Rachel in Genesis 29. And of course, he doesn't learn from the chaos in his marriages and plays favorites again with Joseph in Genesis 37. Jacob's shrewdness and genius in his business then does not extend to the most important areas of his life. So there's a lesson, a negative lesson we can actually learn from from Jacob. Although he was a shrewd businessman, he was good with his flocks, he wasn't always so good with relationships. He seemed to uh, take people for granted many times, caused a lot of upset situations in his family. So he didn't do what we were talking about just a moment ago, you know, allowing the foundation of work, the foundation that God has laid for us to permeate the rest of his uh, human experience. Something to consider. The shepherding process extends to other important areas of life in Israelite religion and society. When, When Joseph brought his family to Egypt, there was an immediate separation between the Israelites and the Egyptians caused by the primary occupation of the Israelites. It's a very interesting situation. The fact that they were shepherds actually caused the separation that was important to have between the pagan Egyptians and those who worshipped the one and only God. Genesis 46, 33-34 makes this very clear. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what's your occupation? This is Joseph talking to his brothers. You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. This separation served to sanctify the Israelites and keep them holy. And even after 400 years, the Israelites had not become overtaken by rampant Egyptian paganism as a result of this Separation. God was watching out for his people. He was using his people. They were his flock. They were his sheep. And he knew that he needed to keep them separate from pagan religion. He needed to keep them separate from idolatry. He needed to keep them in an area, even a a geographical location as far away from them as they could get and still benefit from the, the things that they offered. All right. Well, we'll start with this portion of the lesson uh, 